Well, we're nearly uh, at the end uh, of uh, this series. Uh, we called the series uh, Love and Light. And, uh, you know, despite the complicated way that the author of this letter, uh, 1 John, has explained things, the message this week is, in fact, very, very simple. And it's extremely poignant to some of the things and some of the testimonies that we've had this morning. But you see, the whole Bible at times can seem really, really complicated, can't it? But it isn't really. The message is very, very simple. The problem is we as human beings try to make it complicated. Just read the Bible in the context that it's written. And the message is very, very simple. So let me summarize where we are so far in this letter. And I'll try and do it in 60 seconds. Sai put us into the perfect context in week one, right at the very beginning, who the author of these letters, letters is. Uh, he's referred to in uh, second and third letters of John as the elder. In the Gospel of John, in chapters 21, uh, in chapter 21, verses 20 to 24, he's described as the disciple that Jesus loved. But when you look at the letter, what he is saying in the letter is actually the whole of the theme of chapters 13 to 17 in the Gospel of John. And theologians throughout the years have all come to the conclusion that it must be written by John the Apostle himself. And that he's writing to the church in Ephesus. The home church is in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to them because they have an issue that there is this breakaway group who are denying that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He called them the Antichrist. And if you remember, that was uh, when Sam preached the other week uh, on chapter 2. Called them the Antichrist. And John is trying to give the churches some assurance and, and to limit the damage that these false teachers have caused. Now, Sai described right at the very beginning, and again he reiterated it like uh, last week, that the way that John writes, it's a bit like a bird of prey circling over its prey. Uh, I love that analogy. It really brought it to life for me. I understand what he means now. Because John keeps going round and round, reiterating the same point over and over again. But you see, I'm not as clever as Sai, and I'm definitely not an ornithologist. So I like to think of things in a way that I can visualize because I've had experiences of them. So I don't know if... Any of you ever been on an aeroplane and landed at Heathrow Airport? Well, that's the sort of circling how I visualize how John rides, uh, writes it, you see. Because if you're coming into Heathrow or sometimes into Gatwick, you can get put into what's called a holding circle, can't you? And you go round and round and round and you're looking out the window and you think, are we ever going to stop seeing this building or this swimming pool or whatever, and then suddenly the captain comes onto the tannoy, doesn't he? He says, we've now been given permission to proceed to our destination. And off we go, last time round the circle and down onto the descent, and we land on the westerly runway. Well, that's what John's doing this week. 
He's getting us to the place where he's coming to sum up the letter. So sit back. We're on the final descent path. We're going to land on that westerly runway. And then next week, Sai is going to taxi the plane all the way along to the terminal building and tell us all about the second and third letters. So what is the constant message of today's passage? Well, it's very simple. God's love and the light of Jesus equals eternal life. You see, the passage is all about the testimony of God concerning His Son, and you need to have big listening ears for these words, because John is about to present God's evidence for His Son. Today, we're going to see that we can trust God, and we can trust His testimony, and we want to, He wants us to embrace the facts, and then when we do that, we will have eternal life. So shall we read the passage? If you turn in your Bibles, in whatever format you have them, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 21, which is at the end, uh, the words are on the screen as well. This is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that. One should pray for that. You see, all wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and that we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. 
Have any of you ever witnessed a trial in a proper courtroom? And I don't mean watching Judge Judy or Judge Rinder on TV. I mean in a proper magistrate's or crown court. Some of, yeah, excellent. Some of you here, have ever, any of you ever done jury duty? Wow. I've never done jury duty. It's something I would love to do. Uh, well, today I want you to imagine that you are all either magistrates or jurors, and you're hearing John's submission of the truth. Now, last week, Sai spoke about uh, the evidence of loving God that becomes apparent in lives changed by God. Remember, in the opening verses of chapter 5, it said this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And because of this, Sai spoke about as born-again believers, we are able to love God and each other, and we are enabled to keep his commandments. John then shows us how this happens. This miracle of change that is the outworking, the evidence that we see in everyday lives of those who have been born again of God. In effect, the change from death to life, from being dead folk working, walking the earth to becoming overcomers of the earth is so terribly important. It's so awesomely imperative that we understand this truth that John uses the strongest truth possible for us to grasp it. It is the testimony of God himself. The testimony of God. In only five verses, verses 6 to 11 there, I don't know if you noticed, but John referred to testimony eight times. It's clearly important. Eight times he refers to it. But what is testimony? Let's look at a good definition. It's a statement of a witness, an oath offered as evidence of the truth of what is alleged. So it's a statement of somebody who's seen something happen. They're given an oath to offer that, what they've seen as evidence of the truth of what's been alleged. So this is really important because John is offering the evidence of the truth about Jesus. This is God's testimony. Here God has provided a statement, an oath, and we know God can never lie about the allegations that his son is precisely that, his son. All that has been written in about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation is the truth. And it's so important that we get this because the outcome, the understanding of it leads to our eternal destination from our deaths on earth. Now, over the years, in my work in the fire service, I've had to hear and give evidence in lots of disciplinary and management hearings, uh, as well as in different types of court. And then, uh, as some of you know, until a few years ago, I spent 10 years serving uh, as a magistrate. Uh, and I would sit with my fellow magistrates, sometimes with judges, uh, hearing solicitors, barristers, the accused, all giving evidence and testimonies in uh, the adult and youth courtrooms. 
Sometimes I even sat in the Crown Court with High Court judges listening to appeals. And I can tell you that weighing the evidence uh, and coming to a human conclusion could be flawed. I have heard some amazingly wonderful stories uh, come out of people's mouths to explain how, when, and why they are incidents occurred and why they need to be in court today, being judged by myself and my peers. And do you know what? Sometimes they didn't tell the truth. <laughs> but that's why we have judges and juries, to decide what is the truth. Let me tell you two fairly quick stories. First one. Uh, I was rostered one day to sit in the uh, High Court at Lewis uh, on some appeals. And uh, I was in the judge's chambers having a cup of tea with him, as one does. And it was all very nice. And uh, we were about to go in and start to listen to some appeals. And, uh, but just before we did, he had been listening to a trial for a week where there'd been lots of testimony and evidence. Uh, and he'd sent the jury out to deliberate. And while we were having that cup of tea, he said to me that uh, he'd already written the pronouncement overnight while he was at home, because uh, uh, he'd heard all the evidence, so he'd made his notes, he summed it all up, and he was going to send this guy to prison for seven years. 25 minutes later, the clerk of the court came in and said the jury have come to a decision, Your Honour. So we all troops back into court, the jury get brought in, and the foreman of the jury stands, and he declares this guy not guilty. I have to say, the judge's face never changed. It was as if he expected it, and he, he was very, very professional. Another occasion, when I was a, a young fire prevention officer in Leeds, uh, as part of my training to go out and, uh, and uh, do that work, we had to learn all about court procedures. And so we spent the day at Leeds Crown Court, and we were being shown around by one of the security guys there who, yeah, he was an ex-fireman. And uh, anyway, uh, we, were, we were walking around, and he, he got the nod that a jury was about to come back in on a murder trial. Uh, and so as we were walking in to the courtroom, to, to our seats, uh, he gave us a little bit of background on what had been going on in the trial. And what had happened was uh, the jury couldn't come to a, a unanimous decision. But they'd been back in and the judge had said he would accept a majority verdict of 10 to 2. So they'd obviously achieved that. And they were coming back in. And uh, so the, again, the foreman of the jury stood up, and he announced that they'd managed to come to a 10 to 2 uh, decision, uh, and that that was that the guy was guilty of murder. Now, what happens in any trial is then what happens is the clerk of the court stands up and reads the, the accused's previous record, and that helps judges and magistrates decide on what their propensity to offend is, uh, and, and can sentence accordingly. 
And when this guy's record was read out, uh, suffice it to say, he had an extremely violent past. And it was quite obvious from where I was sitting which were the two jurors who had struggled to find this guy guilty. You see, man's judgment is always subject to being in error. Men can be good liars. They can also be poor tellers of the truth. But God is never either. John knows this, and therefore it's amazing that he stands aside and doesn't provide his own compelling evidence of who Jesus is. You see, if we looked, if, if we were going to want John to go into the stand and what he might say in the witness box, we, we've seen it already in the beginning of 1 John and in the Gospel of John, haven't we? You know, John heard Jesus. John saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He witnessed miracles. He witnessed the death of Jesus on the cross. He met the risen Jesus. And he experienced the giving of the Holy Spirit. John's testimony, his evidence of the truth of what is alleged, has survived rigorous uh, testing of 2,000 years of the greatest theological scholars. And he could have presented all of that evidence himself of the truth of what is alleged by these antichrists. But he doesn't. What he does is he presents the evidence of Scripture, of God's own words. And he says, what he says are the facts of the matter. He says, the evidence is the water, the blood, and the Spirit. Do you remember, right at the very beginning, he submits that these three things are the evidence of God on earth and his continuing presence with us. Those opening two, three verses of this passage were really complicated, weren't they? The water, the blood, the spirit, and all this and all that. It's dead simple. There's so much written about these verses and what they means. There could be a whole sermon series on them, but there's no need. It's dead simple. I agree with uh, John Piper's summation of it, uh, having read so many of the theological explanations as I was preparing for this. And he says that water represents Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan, where the Spirit descended upon him as a dove, and as it says in Mark 1.11, the Father testified, this is my beloved Son. The blood represents his crucifixion, which is that most amazing climax to his ministry on earth. The whole reason why God sent him to earth, to set us free, to take away our sin, to give us eternal life. So the baptism, the water, the cross, the blood, embody the person and the work of Jesus. And it's important, this, because it shows us that Jesus was fully and thoroughly the eternal Son of God at his baptism, and he was fully and thoroughly the eternal Son of God at his death. 
But that's not enough for John to emphatically explain this point to us. And if you use my courtroom analogy, what does he do now? He calls to the witness stand the Holy Spirit. He places, we might say, God in the dock. Look at the middle of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And all three of them agree. See, we know John was an eyewitness to lots of miracles of Jesus, and certainly to Jesus' death. And yet he calls upon the Spirit to take the stand, which is a really safe move, isn't it? Because the Holy Spirit is God. And as Hebrews 6.18 says, it's impossible for God to lie. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience of the Western world today is that it's become rather cynical. Uh, and to some extent, we instinctively mistrust witnesses and what people say. So when I was sitting as a magistrate, if I only had one person as a witness to a, an event, I may have some doubts. If I had two witnesses all saying the same thing, I'd feel a little bit more certain. If I had three all giving me exactly the same testimony, it's a no-brainer. This is how it was. This is how the way things occurred. So let's now read again verses 9 and 10 of the passage. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God which he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. You see, back then in Ephesus, those men, the Antichrists, were teaching that, John, uh, that Jesus is not the Messiah. That's the testimony of men. But God said he was. And we know that that's the truth. And it says it there in verse 10, doesn't it? Whoever does not believe God, i.e. dismisses his testimony, has made him, God, a liar. Because if it's not the truth, then the opposite is, of course, it's a lie. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God is testifying that Jesus is his son and that in him we can have eternal life. It also says, I don't know if you picked it up in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has that testimony in himself. See, there's an internal testimony that coincides with the external testimony. Isn't that awesome? We have that testimony inside us. We carry the testimony. We carry the life. John has seen the light. Jesus brings the light. And the Holy Spirit is given to be with us forever and to keep us pointing to him. And three times John delivered this message. Verse 11, And this is the testament that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
He puts it a little bit more plainly in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then in verse 13, one third and final time, he says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you get the message? Let's hope the church in Ephesus did. You see, God's love and the light of Jesus equals eternal life. And this is a three for two deal because we get the Holy Spirit to guide us along the way. Now, as a Yorkshireman, I love a three-for-two deal. <laughs> Two for the price of one. We used to say in Yorkshire, oat for note. Now, if you think, what is the best and most useful free gift you've ever been given? Somebody may have given you thousands and thousands of pounds, millions of pounds. I don't know. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is better than any of those. The Apostle John wrote probably the most famous verse in the whole of the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have... Have you got it? God's love and the light of Jesus equals... Thank you with the Holy Spirit living in us to guide us along that path of life until we get to that day when we're going to see Jesus face to face in all his glory. I don't know about you, I just, I can't wait. And as we sung earlier, the light of the world stepped down onto this earth, into the darkness of this world. Cast your minds back to that beautiful passage at the beginning of John's Gospel. What, what did he tell us right at the very beginning? The first five verses of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. Now we know from our excellent teaching, don't we? Who is the Word? So wherever it says the Word, I'm going to say Jesus. Right? In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, the light of the world, he physically carried the light within himself, the God light, Remember, in him was the light of the world. Jesus was and is God's light bearer. He has imparted, he's left it, he's given it. He continues to give that light of God to those who believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. He is the very testimony of God. And our spirits here in this room today can say that Jesus is the Lord. Whoever loves Jesus, and because of that testimony inside us, and we, if we believe it in our hearts, we can proclaim it with our mouths. God's testimony 
is in us. And whoever carries the testimony within us has life. And whoever does not carry the testimony does not have life. It's that simple. The truth is not in them. No matter how honest the person they are. So what does that mean then? It means that you and I, we are testimony bearers. You know the truth. And dear brothers and sisters, what do we know about knowing the truth? It sets us free. Amen. And all our personal testimonies of being born again are really, really powerful to listeners. If they, in effect, hear our testimony, what they're hearing is the Spirit of God testifying about what He has done in our lives. And so when we open our lips and we declare what He has done for us and lay our hearts on the line, line, it is so, so powerful. There are people in this room today who are here because some of you have revealed your hearts, have given them your testimony. I think, I think of one time, we, Lynn and I had just become Christians, uh, and we were in a curry house in Bedford. You may have been there, Brenda and Andy, because it's just round the corner from your daughter's house. We'd just become Christians, and we sat in this curry house with uh, a couple who I worked with, who we were good friends with. And Lynn was just telling them how our lives were changing. And as she was doing it, she was tears were pouring down her face. She was really bearing her heart to them. And they were hard-hearted, like we'd been before. But seeing Lynn in the way that she was, and the way Graham had seen me changing in the workplace, they went home and they said, we want a bit of that. It is so, so powerful carrying that testimony within us. So what then is the application or the working out in our daily lives of being God's testimony bearers? Well, John tells us, and we can be confident from the facts that we know. In verse 14, we can talk to God and he hears us. In verse 15, If our prayers align with his will, he acts. Verse 16, we can pray for others. I don't know about you, did you find that verses 16 and 17 a little bit difficult with what's all this sin that leads to death all about? Well, again, let me put it very simply for you. Uh, Theologians have stewed over this for years. Sai gave me five, five books to read. Thank you, Simon. I found loads on the interweb. There again, there's sermon series we could have just on those two verses alone. But if you remember what I said right at the beginning, you've got to take it into the context of how it was written. And in the context of this letter, it's very simple. John tells his readers not to pray for those who are committing sins, a sin that leads to death. John's referring, I think, in the context of this letter, to sins that are incompatible with being a child of God, and in particular referring to the false teachers who prove to be pretenders. They're not the believers who've fallen for the lies, 
These are the unbelieving wolves themselves. These are the Antichrist, the one who have never possessed the Father, who pretended to be family members, the ones who walked away, the ones who exchanged the truth about Jesus, the church, and the spirit for lies. But John reminds us that every sin is serious. And in the very first chapter of this letter, John declared that everyone sins. We just have the assurance that if we confess our sins, that we can get forgiven. Let me remind you what it says. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're all sinners. We need to be honest about it. But verse 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that just the most amazing and precious promise? But he also says that not every sin leads to death. The fact of the matter is this. When a sinner, a believer sins, he doesn't then deny the deity of humanity or the humanity of Jesus and hate the church. On the contrary, he does what we saw first thing this morning. He confesses, he repents, and he's led by God into the church family where it's our job to encourage him to live in God's love. And I didn't know you were going to give that testimony this morning when I wrote that. That is the power of God. Verse 18. Jesus protects and helps us in our lives. Verse 18 is actually repeating chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God, born again, continues to sin. But you see, our role in a church is to protect our brothers and sisters. Going to church is where we grow in union. We grow in union with Christ. It's not where we go to be taught, to be sing nice songs and to drink coffee for a couple of hours every Sunday. If we are children of God, we are a family. And what do families do? If we see one of our siblings sinning, our job is to pull alongside them, to be honest with them, point them towards Jesus and what the Bible says about their situation. Then in verse 19, he says that we are separate from the world. And in verse 20, he says that Jesus came and revealed the one and only God of truth. And when we know him, our reward will, as I stated, right at the very beginning, eternal life. God's love, the light of Jesus, eternal life. Can I invite the band uh, back up? Will I just finally close with that little, little one-liner in verse 21? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, most New Testament letters always contain in their final words a warning similar to this. But in this letter, what does that mean to us? We 
have been given an amazing privilege to be in God's testimony bearers. So John is just giving us a warning to stay away from those things that will dilute the truth within us, distract us from that truth. So to summarize, the whole letter of 1 John challenges us to keep the testimony of God bright and clean and fresh in our lives. And in fact, the whole message of this letter is that we must keep walking in the light, loving one another and not the world, living our lives so that that world out there sees that we are children of God and all the difficulties that that entails. Being aware of the Antichrist, and there are still many around today, but most of all, trusting God's love. Shall we pray? Father, we want to thank you that you love us so much. Lord, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our light. Father, thank you that we see through the baptism and crucifixion of Jesus the testimony and the facts that all you say is true. Lord, as we struggle in this world today that is so influenced by the evil one, we seek your help. Lord, thank you that you have given each and every one of us who believes in you your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to guide us as this world seeks to pull us apart. Lord, help us as a church family to walk towards each other, to seek and to love one another in ways the world around us does not comprehend. Father, we thank you for this series on the letters of John for showing us your love and light. Lord, we proclaim your Son Jesus as our Saviour Help us to be united to him through faith. And Lord, we thank you for promising us that our reward is to be with you for eternity. What a gift. What a saviour. What a father. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.